This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Morn. So, this week on the podcast, I am delighted to be joined by the fantastic Ro McDermott. Ro is a writer, she is a journalist, you'll probably best know her from her column work at the Irish Times, uh, she's also a writer uh, with Hot Press, uh, she's a recipient of the Next Generation Award from the Arts Council and she has a book of essays uh, on trauma, gender uh, and culture uh, that's due for release in the very near future. I first came across Ro at a writer's retreat in the Tyrone Guthrie Centre in Anna and uh, we talk about it a little bit on the episode but from the moment we met I was kind of like, this is a cool person. Uh, we've kept in contact since then which I'm so delighted about and now we've become friends and I don't know about you but I think it's hard to make friends as an adult so this is uh, this is just a joyous chat all round so without further ado please enjoy the wonderful Ro McDermott Ro McDermott you ready to play personality bingo? Let's go Let's do this. I'm going to win, right? Like, this is how it works. I win and defeat you. That's what everybody says. And then the yeah. game slowly breaks them down. <laughs> That's what happens. That's what happens. Um, so here's how it works. Uh, there's 60 minutes on the clock. There's 60 balls in the bingo machine. And there's 60 corresponding questions. I also want to give a massive shout out to Headstuff about the bingo machine. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. And also, this was bought for me by a listener from season no one. No way, that's so cute. Very cute, because I had a really shit one and used to kind of make jokes about it. And then they sent me one. And this is like a proper, beautiful it's bingo gorgeous. machine. It looks like a piece of mid-century art and also I really want to fill it up with Maltesers yeah. and have one on my kitchen counter. Listen, I know you're doing some renovating at the moment <laughs> um, but I want to say, so I hadn't this is like, so we're doing a new season but a little inside baseball, this is the first recording day in like four years so thank I'm you for honored. thank you for being part of it. I wanted to pick nice people to talk to on my first day and they were uh, available <laughs> yeah. yeah let's go <laughs> exactly um, so but all the bingo balls were still in the machine after four years of not being touched. Like a shrine, like a shrine to you in the podcast. Like like parents who keep their child's bedroom like the exact same in case they ever need to return home, you know. Well, the prodigal son has returned to the bingo machine. Yeah, I mean, that was a sad image. That was a sad image. <laughs> I feel like this should be more joyous. But yes, you've got the vibe. But I was just so blown away. So shout out to Headstuff for keeping it safe for me because I kind of just left it here. But they, they kept it safe. I'm so impressed no one took a ball. I... Probably would have, but that says more about me. Are you slightly insulted? No one stole one. Um, I wasn't until you said it, but now a little <laughs> bit. Um, so yes, uh, also, I have given you a sheet with mm. five numbers on it. Would you do me a favour and read out the five? We have two, three, forty-six, thirty-eight, and 17. No, you can't do that voice for the whole podcast. <laughs> this is a, this is a, this is not 18s plus. <laughs> I was going for like a weather girl lottery announcement. Oh no, no it was full like full <laughs> sexy chat line. Oh, that's where I get my lot on the brain. Sexy chat line. No, no, no. Um, so what I'm going to ask you to do in a completely non-sexy voice is uh, to pick another number that's not there, something between 1 and 60. Uh, in a non-sexy voice. Mm-hmm. 23! That's very good. I yeah. think you said 23. Yeah, I did. Okay. 2023. I feel like let's enter the new year with 23. Nice. Yeah. I love it. That's fantastic. All right. 
Should we give it a spin? Let's go. Sorry. You oh. see, I am a little bit rusty. I should say, if you do win and all the numbers come out, that means that the tables are turned and you can ask me any question in the whole wide world and I'll give you a totally honest answer. Any question in the whole wide world? Yeah. Not on your sheet? Not on my sheet. Although you could take one off the sheet if you Interesting. want. Interesting. Okay. Can I swap that for a cash prize? No. No? Okay. I'm very poor. All right, here we go. <laughs> okay. First number out. It's three and eight, number 38. I do have 38. Do you? Yes. Oh, shit. Bingo. No, it's not. It's bit. It's bit, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah it's the bit yeah, in bingo. True. Okay. Well done. Thank you. Great start. I know, I'm very skilled at this game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, we're right in there. If you could give 12-year-old you some advice, what would you say? Oh, God. Okay. I w- at 12. <laughs> uh, so, let's get let's get right into the awkward stuff. I went through puberty quite early, and so I was like the tall girl in my class, and I was an absolute nerd, and I was in, I must have been in first year or second year, because I was a year behind... I was like the youngest in my class all the time. I think at 12, I was, you know, that was full on awkward stage. I, there are no photos of me at that stage because I either refuse to get my photo taken or I have torn them up in the years since. It was not a good time for baby row. Um, I think I was quite anxious as a 12 year old. I was in a school I didn't really like. Um, I was in a school and this is nothing against the people in the school. Like everybody was lovely, but I had known them all since I was four because we had all been in the same primary school and then we all kind of filtered in to a new community school in our area. And I found that really difficult because I think I had in my head, I was awkward and I was insecure and I really wanted a fresh start and wanted to like reinvent myself. And I felt really stifled by having people who've known me since I was four. So I couldn't get away with trying to introduce myself and try and be like a cool, nearly teenager. You couldn't um, do the sexy voice. You couldn't do the sexy voice. No, I couldn't at 12. Um <laughs> But so I found that really hard and I think I got, yeah, I had like anxiety and I was insecure. And so I think, I think at 12, I just say you're you're not fully formed yet and neither is anyone around you. And I think I had this really big fear of if people know me at four, if they know me at 12, they're never going to let me be anything else and they're never gonna let me grow and because I was so embarrassed about who I was I was like oh my god I'm gonna be frozen like this forever because of the people around me and I was so myopic and kind of didn't acknowledge that like the people around me were also growing up and changing as well and so I think I tell myself that you're not done growing and neither is anyone else around you and that's fine and I think maybe and I moved from that school after third year and I really didn't stay in touch with anybody from it. And again, for me, that was such a, I need to shed my identity and start over because I'm so insecure about who I am. And I think that, like, I'm sad about that now. Do you know what I mean? That I didn't stay in touch with these people. And, like, I don't necessarily think they were my people. Like, I don't know if we'd still be best friends. But, like, I see people who are in touch with people. They've been a school forever. And I, I think those connections are really lovely, actually, to have people who've known you for so long. And people have that in their family. But to have people in your social circle who do remember you when you were an awkward 12-year-old and 13-year-old and have seen you grow and are really proud and supportive of the ways that you've grown. So I think I tell myself to calm down, (laughs) to let myself grow and let the other people around myself grow and also to keep those relationships because I think... I've been bopping around a little bit. I, yeah, I moved schools and then I went to college and I dropped out of college for a year. And then 
I went to a different college for my master's and then I moved to the States for a couple of years. And I think at every stage I was very, like into my 20s, I was very like, no, I'm leaving that version of Roe behind and now I'm going to be slick and have all my shit together. And of course I never did. Um, But yeah, I felt kind of uprooted a little bit and didn't maintain those connections that I think I regret now and I'm trying to, you know, and I've committed to staying in Ireland now, which was really up in the air for a long time until COVID because I was, I lived in San Francisco for about three years and then was back and forth to San Francisco for about a year and then I spent some time in New Orleans and was back and forth there for about a year and a half and I was really like, no, I'm leaving Ireland forever so I don't have to put down roots and during COVID, like just a lot of things shifted for me and I think America is getting terrifying (laughs) and seeing my friends over like politically it's terrifying, seeing my friends during COVID who were freelance and got like one payment from the government throughout all of COVID who were terrified of getting sick sick because it would literally bankrupt them and there was just a sense and has always been the sense that the American government really doesn't care if you live or die if you don't have enough money to like pay for health insurance which a lot of people don't whereas Ireland and God knows we didn't get everything right during COVID but there was a sense of we care and we're really trying to keep everyone safe and even the PUP payments and trying to make sure that people can get by and respecting artists and the new artist grants that are coming in like there's also the housing crisis and the cost of living crisis and a lot of social problems in Ireland but there is a sense of would they care whether we live or die and that was really big for me and I also felt like I want to stop running and want to stop like shedding my skin like a snake (laughs) and basically like building up community around me um which has been really nice and a big shift but I think at 12 I was terrified of that idea just terrified of someone knowing me and seeing me through those stages and so telling myself to calm down and to embrace the process of change and embrace the people around you you can see it because it's actually quite lovely and important I think when you also to not get that haircut it was so bad man. it was so bad when you not to cut oh this is actually more important scrap all of that mm-hmm. one time I cut um the front of my hair because I wanted to I don't know if people remember this there was this thing of you put your hair in your ponytail and you'd have two bits down the side of your face and I used to cut them and my mom hated it and I cut them a little bit too short once and I panicked and cut it off at the root and so just at the front of my hair I just had like a sprout for like a year actually scrap all that crap emotional stuff yeah yeah it's the sprout at the front of my hair don't do that it's bad plan oh wow yeah I had to wear like a hairband on my forehead for about a year like a misdirected unicorn (laughs) Yeah. What what was the obvious question, but it was dangling there in front of me. Like, what, you see, you talked about, like, stop, you stopped running at a certain mm. point. What Do you have a sense of what it was you've stopped running from? Me? I think genuinely, like, I think, I've you know, I have, I've had mental health stuff. Like, I had depression kind of young and it wasn't diagnosed for a very, very long time. Like, I do have, I think we're getting better at it, but I think... We're, we're good at talking about mental health. I don't know how much better doctors are at acknowledging it to people if people don't go to them and say, I think I have depression. Like, and my doctors really weren't proactive. And it wasn't actually until I went to the States. Um, I was in my 20s and I went to a doctor and she said, so someone like you who has struggled for this long, you really should try antidepressants. And we, we don't have to put you on anything you're not comfortable with. Like if they affect your weight, if they affect your sex drive, if they have any adverse effects, we can change them, but you should give them a try. And that was like life changing for me. Um, But I think, yeah, so I was kind of struggling with depression and my mental health and insecurity and just had so much shame around like who I never felt good enough and was always really embarrassed about getting things wrong. And um, 
And I think that lasted for a long time, but it's kind of evolved into me being more forgiving of other people, like if they mess up, because I am so aware of like, if I have a social slip or if I say the wrong thing or in a very natural way, if I grow out of beliefs or if I understand something more and I'm so mortified about what I said five years ago, uh, I used to have so much like burning shame around that. Mm. Whereas now I'm like, thank God I'm different to what I was five years ago. And thank God, like my thinking has evolved. And also I needed that stepping stone to get to where I am now. Um, but I just, I constantly had this idea that someone was going to find me out that any social success I had or any professional success I was just an imposter and so anytime I messed up I just stored that in my brain so vividly and so I think I was always like no I'll, I'll start again in a new college I'll start again in San Francisco I'll start again in New Orleans and I don't you know no one will hold my past against me and my slip-ups and this time I'll be perfect and that's never going to happen mm-hmm. and I think accepting that about myself and going yeah you're going to screw up and so is everyone else around you and it's about surrounding yourself with people who are as empathetic and generous to let you and I will also celebrate the ways that you grow um, and I just didn't trust myself or other people to do that before so I think there was a lot of that um, yeah I, I think like that thing of like that sort of I don't know is it self-compassion or whatever it is mm. you know to to yeah forgive previous versions of yourself but like I think it <laughs> it is weird because like in the culture for want of a better mm-hmm. phrase like you do see it exemplified where like that forgiveness is far from universal which for me is one of the most like loathsome things about like the world we live in Mm. now I think because like in and I I think it's really funny because in my like social circles and my friends and if I like anyone really that I interact with in any kind of like close way I'm like I would see it in spades and like there's a real because I think that is a non-negotiable for me like if Mm. I think it's like because if you can't acknowledge that at various times in your life you were less than ideal to yourself but also to other people because you're a human being on planet Earth and mm. that's what we do and have always done and will always do. You know what I mean? But like when there's not that kind of like self-awareness or openness to, yeah, forgiving someone or, or moving on. And obviously, look, there's spectrums to all this. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But like I think that's so huge and yet it, it feels like, I don't know. And also I think that often the people who maybe don't demonstrate that are often really loud so like I think whereas when I actually think of like nearly anyone I know and love and respect like all of them I would say would have a good degree of kind of understanding that the world's a complex place and people are messy yeah I think it's hard and like I'm we're gonna I'm just gonna park the term cancel culture because nobody is ever talking about the same thing like it's kind yeah. of a meaningless phrase yeah. like is it cancel culture if like a really famous Hollywood producer goes to prison is or loses jobs because he's sexually assaulted loads of people is it cancel culture if someone on the internet who not a lot of people know makes a joke and their Twitter followers attack them like it's never the same thing um But I think like I have participated in that kind of black and white thinking. And so I think quite differently. And I did for a long time. And one thing like I have PTSD and uh, I'm thankfully over the worst of it. I never like to say that I had it because then if I have a flash of something, I'll feel like, oh, I've regressed majorly. So uh, I have PTSD. It doesn't affect me on a day to day anymore. I'm very grateful for that. But it did for a very long time. 
one of the things about PTSD is that it promotes uh, hypervigilance, which is that you're literally viewing the world as a dangerous place and constantly looking for signs that you are not safe, like in every interaction. Like there was a solid 18 month, two year period where nobody could speak to me without me interpreting it as them criticizing me, starting a fight because my body was literally primed going, this is an unsafe space. And so I would just react really, really defensively. Uh, PTSD also promotes black and white thinking because again your body is trying to keep you safe and trying to say this is a safe category this is an unsafe category and if you are in any way in the unsafe category you just can't be in my life because it will send me into a spiral Um, and these are literal symptoms of PTSD and I I dove, they affected me in a lot of ways, but they also played on kind of pre-existing attitudes that I'd have that I, you know, I want the world to be better. I've experienced stuff like mental health stuff. I've I've experienced sexual violence, like one in four women. Um, I've experienced emotional abuse and there was no justice for any of those things. And all of that stuff built within me. They were like cumulative experiences of me not seeing the world protecting me and not seeing the world dole out justice in the way that it had promised me. And so I see that in a lot of reactions to stuff online that there are a lot of really genuinely traumatized people who are trying to make the world safe and who haven't been listened to. And I'm not saying everybody has PTSD, but there's almost this sense of like in my little world on social media or wherever I have a voice, I'm going to react and I'm going to try and make everybody act in the most kind of morally right way possible, ethical way that I can. they have to get all the language right all of the time. And if they don't get it right, I can't let them in my world and I'm going to speak out really loudly about them. And I think it is damaging in that it's, it, isn't, it isn't showing that empathy and it isn't showing that forgiveness and it's not calling people into the conversation and uh, letting them grow. Um, but I also understand that reaction. And I had to do like a lot of work on myself and go, well, I'm trying to prove myself as like a morally righteous person all the time. Because again, I have a lot of shame and I've been told that I'm wrong in all these kinds of ways. So I constantly need to prove myself. And also because... I feel like I have so little control in the world because I've experienced all of these kind of violences and abuses that I need to exert it in some way. And so when I see stuff like that, like on Twitter, when people are reacting and calling people out and kind of, you know, ostracizing people for doing something wrong, I understand both sides of it. And I think hopefully what's happening now is that I think there is a shift and more people are talking about like how damaging the spectrum of cancel culture can be. But I think we need to hold those two things at the same time and go, why are people reacting this way? And what is the need that they're expressing, like the need to be understood, the need for a sense of justice? Why isn't it happening systemically? And then as a community in whatever communities we're in, how can we do this in a way that is more healing and more transformative? And I think that's why like ideas like transformative justice are getting more. I think there's a really big differentiation happening now between the idea of punishment and accountability. Like mm-hmm. punishment is just slapping a really vicious consequence on somebody and not looking at the root cause of anything or not looking towards progression. Accountability is saying, I want you to be a better version of yourself. What are the conversations we can have to get you there? Mm. And I'm really welcoming that change. But I do, I understand both sides of that kind of online reaction. And that's why I'm not online anymore because it was promoting, it was kind of, I was buying into it. And then when I took a step back, I was saying, I actually don't, this isn't acting in line with my values. I'm reacting instead of thinking what kind of actions do I want to promote in the world or what kind of conversations do I want to promote in the world. And I think that's a lot of social, like 
Twitter and Instagram, they're designed to affect our brains and keep us addicted and keep our cortisol levels up and keep us stressed. Um, and so I think they're dangerous like that. Um, but yeah, I had to get off them to really let those messages sink in. And that was only in the past couple of years. Yeah, but I think what's so gorgeous about what you're able to do there is to kind of hold space for the two the two sides mm. of it. And that, that's actually, that what you said there is a really good perspective and that's something that I could do a little bit better because when I see people go really hard, at kind of anyone online, like I, I it, it bothers me. I really mm-hmm. struggle with it because I'm like, I don't know if you know how destructive what you're doing could be to the person, to someone else, to people witnessing that. Like I really struggle to have empathy and compassion for someone like that because I'm and I, I I have always held that awareness that like I'm sure whatever's happened in the run up to whatever the thing could be because it could be anything that this is tapping into something really deep in you because otherwise the the like outsized response like I, I I can't I can't understand it so I struggle but I think like what you're saying there is when you do take into account yeah like there are like I think that that's what's so mad about life sometimes you're like god yeah there's just loads of little traumatised pinballs bobbing around you know and when you see but like when people bounce off each other that way and I think as well what, and I, I think that's wonderful about getting offline too because and it's something I'm sure nearly anyone who listens to this has probably played around in their head but when you get offline and you're in the world and you're like fuck me people are great they're lovely <laughs> and you know the, the man who made my coffee today or like you know the, the, the bus driver on the way in or whatever the thing was and you have mm-hmm. these lovely gorgeous interactions and like you're like people are people are good people are nice people are like I think intrinsically for the most part bend towards positivity and joy and compassion and all these things that like we think we want and then you have these spaces as you said I'm like I don't fucking know enough about algorithms to talk about them but you just have a real sense that like that 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 is what they traffic but also then when people get like that affirmation of a like or a click or whatever and then you're like that feels so good absolutely you know and people will people will bend and they'll they'll move towards and I I would call it that like the dark because some of that stuff is fucking dark I think there's a few things about it. Like, I think, first of all, that I don't think we do acknowledge, like, how stressful it is to be at, like, and I've had, look, I'm I'm a public feminist. I've had my fair share of, like, Reddit threads about me and I was... Really? Her- oh, completely. And I was, her- like, I had to have a court case because I was getting harassed for this by this guy for literally years and I get, like, tons of, you know, there was a period where, particularly around repeal, because I did my master's thesis in San Francisco, but I did it about Irish women's experiences of travelling for abortion. Mm. So when I moved back, I was doing kind of a lot of... Um, uh, TV appearances talking about repeal and also talking about the Me Too movement because um, they do a lot of work around uh, gender trauma and sexual violence and but like anytime I went on TV like I would just get so much abuse and rape threats and comments about how unattractive I was and uh, and part of me intellect like intellectually I'm like you know I don't care about these people like these are not my people obviously these are trolls whatever um, but it wears you down and so if you've done something and if you said something and you know like there are instances of this every day so you know, don't even have to pick one out but if you're someone and suddenly your phone is blowing up with thousands of tweets talking about how crap you are or how you should lose your job or how you're wrong or how you're unattractive I think if you've never been on the receiving end of that you really underestimate how much stress that causes how much paranoia how much fear how much stress in your body that it causes um, and so it is very easy to go well I've, like I'm just stating my opinion it's like well when a thousand other people have said this like what are you contributing 
continue to that conversation. Um, but I also think for me, what was really big was I had this constant sense of fear around like, oh, but I have to impress these people. And something I talked a lot about when I got offline with my therapist was her response of like, why? Like, you know, I've been through a lot and yeah, like sexual violence and abusive relationships and I've written a lot about that online and she was like, cool, you know, and I have like nearly 11,000 followers on Twitter and stuff. But she said, like, literally, how many of those turned up to your house? Like, with a cup of tea, going, you all right? And I was like, like my friends did, the friends I meet in my real life, uh, but no one. And she was like, okay, so maybe don't worry about these people. Like, they're not turning up for you in the hard times. Like, you'll get a retweet or something if you write something nice. But what do you want your life to look like? And is it this? And I was like, no. And that was a huge shift for me. And once I started focusing on, like, what are the relationships in my life offline? It was like you said. It's that thing of, like, oh, these interactions with people are gorgeous and joyous and empathetic. And the online spaces, what are they offering me? And I think when we're online, we don't often think about ourselves as active. Like it's that idea of like, oh, well, I'm not actively contributing to the pylon. I'm just sending a tweet. But we also don't think of ourselves as like, what community am I creating online? And what is it contributing to my life? And how am I cultivating like the atmosphere that I want or the sense of empathy I want? I think that's really dangerous for young people in particular because... Social media used to be social networking. So it was about the people who were around you and the communities you had. So it was like Facebook. There were like literally your like friends that you hung around with online and then maybe some of your friends who were friends or your college people or whatever. And it would kind of expand. But it always started with, I know these people and I have a relationship with them. Now it's social media. So it's about broadcasting and it's about strangers watching you and who mightn't be invested in you personally, but will be very ready to tear you down. And I think we haven't really accounted for that shift mm. psychologically and emotionally, um, which I think is really hard. And it makes everything feel more anonymous and disconnected, which I think brings out like the worst in our behaviour because we don't have that sense of... Look, I don't know him personally, but he's a friend of a friend and he vouches for him. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and maybe we can have a chat about this thing he said online. Instead, it's I don't know you and I hate you and you have loads of followers. And also I'm dealing with my desire for justice and I can't get that systemically, but I can get it from you. So I'll so I think that offline online thing was a huge shift for me going, what do I want my life to be? Is it constantly looking at my phone and being stressed about what strangers think about me or is it getting offline and being a better version of myself so I'm better for the people in my life who will turn up with a cup of tea and hopefully for you because I don't cook. So. Yeah. <laughs> Completely. All right. I love it. Let's give it a roll. You see how I distracted you there with a question so that you can't win? <laughs> That's what was happening there. All right. Here we go. Number three. Do you have it? I literally have number three. I better win. I'm oh going to start thinking the most invasive first Please question. let's do like, that was like, you know, we'll do 20 <laughs> minutes in each thing. So you can't, you're not even going to get six numbers in. Uh, what Number three. Um, oh, great. What drives you fucking crazy? Everything. <laughs> Everything. Um... Okay, can I go for like something that's driving me crazy recently, like recently that's been on my mind. I've been writing a lot about time and women's time and how women's time is treated completely differently to men's time. Um, because if we still look at like, you know, we're living in a more equal society, but like still in the home, women are doing like 65 to 70% of the domestic labor and childcare work. There are also women are expected. It's not even addressed. Women are expected to take care of like elderly parents or relatives and that 
work never almost never innately falls to men and it's just women are expected to pick it up women do the mental labor still in the home so they know everything that needs to be done they take you know they, they'll know what's in the fridge and what they need to buy and they'll know the kids schedules and the kids doctors and dentist appointments and they know everything and male partners there's a huge problem with male partners going well just tell me what to do and it's like well why don't you know what has to be done in your own home like women are expected to like take up that mental space and energy and also even like hobbies that are coded as female and male uh really affect women's time so if you think of like heteronormative married couples and hobbies that I'm these are sweeping generalizations but like hobbies that are traditionally coded as male as like watching sport playing sport maybe going playing golf like working on cars doing like work in the garden and this is like domestic chores as well it's stuff that takes men out of the home for like a long period of time like if you play golf you're gone for a weekend if you're watching a sports match you're gone for like three hours at a time whereas hobbies that women do are often in the home so and again coded as very female like baking or reading or craft work they do them in the home and they can be interrupted which means they are like kids interrupt them with needs they'll be interrupted by the chores that needs to be done or whatever so women get like far less downtime and also the mental energy that they spend means that they have less energy and less emotional and mental energy to like think about how can I commit more to work or how can I think about that promotion or whatever and then you add in still expectations around women are supposed to look like which takes up so I get so angry <laughs> so I say this to my partner a lot uh, I spend a lot of time getting ready in the morning and yes some of that is my choice and a lot of it is like patriarchal standards I was raised when do you remember the Bridget Jones films like Bridget Jones was deemed to be pop culture's fat girl and I wrote this is burned into my brain she was 136 pounds she wasn't even 10 stone and she was literally pop culture's fat girl and that is burned into my brain and a brain of a lot of millennial women so there was a lot of patriarchal stuff about beauty standards as we grow up with that I can't fully escape but that means like my downtime is spent on like beauty maintenance whereas he gets to chill or like work or play games and stuff and I think you know, I'm in my 30s now and a lot of my friends are like getting married and having kids. And I just see even in the most feminist partnerships, the way women's time is treated completely differently and how it affects like the energy they have for their careers or creative pursuits. And it's so normalized and ingrained. And I think we've had a lot of conversations about how women can be like more modern women and join the workplace. And, you know, we're we're feminists now. But we haven't had a lot of conversations about how what it's like for men who are going to be dating a new generation of feminist women who value our careers, who don't want to be doing everything and the ways in which they need to step up. And I've just been thinking about writing about that a lot because I find it scary in my 30s. Like I find it scary that it's still happening and that it's insidious and that we're not talking about like the ways in which women's time is like robbed from them by patriarchy. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, so I'm going <clears> to... <throat> I don't know how to phrase this next part. I feel <laughs> like, but, but yeah. I, I, that was all fascinating. And I actually really needed to hear a lot of that. Cause I think that I can, I think that there's certainly elements of that, mm. that I would probably perpetuate in my life relatively unthinkingly. And, but what's like your responsibility in that too? Because mm-hmm. I can certainly in that, I can be like me and Rosie were only talking about this the other day. And I was like, 
yeah, like, like I, I, I'm pretty good too. I'm pretty good. But certainly, yeah. it tilts more in her direction without doubt. You know what yeah. I mean? In terms of like housework and domestic chores and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I, So it's actually, it's one of my New Year's intentions to oh, like nice. adjust that, you know, and mm-hmm. to really actively do it. Like to not be like, yeah, I'm going to be better around the house, but to like carve out time. Yeah. Um, so it's really pertinent to be taking this. So I want to flag that there to be like, I'm just, I'm not just like, yeah, well, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, but yeah. like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> I think one thing is interesting is that there is all often this expectation of like, women are socialized, and this is like, there's so much research on this. Re- women are socialized to notice mess more and we're socialized to want to keep our spaces like cleaner and more presentable because there's more shame. Like if a, if a guest comes over to a house where a woman is living in it, They've been shown that women will get judged more for the space being messy than men. Like, you've seen those endless Twitter threads of, like, men inviting women back after, like, a nice date and there's, like, a mattress on the floor and, like, garbage (laughs) everywhere. And men are fine with this because men don't get judged in the same way. So they're not socialised to think about it in the same way. And so I think often women are told, like, well, just chill out about it a little bit. And my response is, like... No, you have to understand the ways in which I have been judged for this and you need to step up. But I do think women need to start having really explicit conversations. I also think like because I write an advice column for the Irish Times and I get a lot of questions about this from like, oh, you know, we're engaged. And he keeps saying when we're married or when we have the baby, he'll do loads of work. And but he's not doing it right now. And that makes me and that is I'm terrified of that. Like I'm terrified of ending up in a long term relationship and having all of this fall on me and the resentment building. And I think women need to get really clear with their partners of like this is what is demanded of me this is how it makes me feel and these are the ways you need to step up and being really clear with those conversations because I think what happens is women internalize this and kind of say well he's not going to do it I also think there's a thing that drives me crazy that's really prevalent on Instagram is that like women almost bond over this like they'll post videos of like oh he can't do the laundry or he messed up the laundry again or this is his version of cleaning the kitchen (laughs) and that drives me crazy because I'm like no we're not doing this Formative heteronormative thing we're like oh my husband he's so useless isn't that adorable I'm like no and I think it is a bonding mechanism between <laughs> women but it's and it's almost a smug married thing of like I, I have a husband to think he's useless <laughs> haven't I great over you single women I'm like no rather be single um But I think we have to stop finding it adorable and go, no, we're two adults living together or whatever situation is. We're responsible. Come in and stop. Like, even if you look at all the ads that treat men like they're useless or like, does your husband have difficulty opening a fridge by this gadget? And, you know, it's that Joey with the milk carton gadget. You know, like there's there's a trope of like useless men and we treat men like they're children and and we say oh they'll never be able to like get on top of the household tasks I'm like that's so infantilizing and waste everybody's time so I think like clearer conversations um and I could probably spend less time doing my island in the morning but that's not gonna happen yeah it's not gonna happen yeah let's go again I have so many (laughs) follow-up questions but these are all too good let's keep it moving all right 56 I don't have 56. Okay. You're off the hook. Yeah. yeah. All okay. right. Um, oh, great. This is appropriate. Although I feel like you might tear my question apart. You're a great guest because you're... Because <laughs> I tear it apart. No, no. I'm just... You're making me think. Um, number 56. What is one thing you're striving to be more of? 
Oh, this is really interesting. Can I ask you a mini question? Please. Okay, so I am writing this piece about rituals for the Irish Times. And it's basically, you know, people are moving away from the church and there's a gap of rituals in our life. And I think rituals are really important to like mark moments of transformation or to mark important life events. And so I spoke to a ritual designer who was really, really fascinating. But it's the new year, right? So often people have these mini rituals. And one thing, I was speaking to one woman and she said that a thing her friend group has done for the past few years and during COVID they did over Zoom what they used to do in person is that they would meet up like before the new year the week before the new year and they would go around and they would all pick a word that they want to embody for the next year and it had to be one word and they had really interesting stuff like people were like there was focused there was more boundaried which I thought there was self-validating which I thought was a great one Um, and they wanted to bring it forward so I've been like thinking about my word and I'm cheating a little bit because I'm picking too but I want to put you on the spot and think do you have a word that you want to like embody or embrace in 2022 or 2023 even it's a great question Mm. I should steal it it's a great question yeah it's really good Um, is there a word I mean I think we were speaking about this like just over coffee a few weeks back and I was talking about like I love the idea of New Year's intentions Mm. I I love that that feels really like I, I like that space The, the first word that came to mind, I feel like it's not as good as the ones you said. No, um, was flexible. Nice. Yeah, I would like, I, I think I can be as a person quite rigid. Really? Yeah, I know. I feel like that might surprise people. Yeah. But yeah, I'm very like, I mean, you could also say like disciplined or... Uh, <laughs> Put a nice spin on it. <laughs> organized, but like I'm rigid, you know, and I'd okay. be aware of it. And I'd say, I'd say, I'd also say like living with a partner has... Of course, because you have to make compromise. And, totally, yeah. Sean and Light in it. And not in a bad way. It's like, there's, there's, I would argue there's more benefit to the rigidity than not. But like... Yeah, it, how does your rigidity like manifest? Is it about your routine? Is it about how you what, like things done? Is it your time? Like, because you're not like emotionally rigid or rigid mm-hmm. in your opinion. So what way does that manifest? Yeah, it's more on that practical day-to-day. Like, I like to like it's a lot of like it's a lot of habits and it's a lot of mm. um it, do you know what it is? it's probably a lot of like ritual in a weird way yeah, it's yeah. a lot of like i i do i like to be up early and i like to be at my desk and like silly things that i, I am rigid about and not i guess but like living with someone else who's like has their own ways of being mm. and i'm like oh yeah uh like that it challenges my mm. rigidity and I think rigidity is a ridiculous word but I think that's no it. I like it yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it um, yeah it's like shone a light on that and I guess like I can feel myself at different times like little bubbles of like resentment nearly like mm-hmm. starting to fizz or be like why, why why isn't that being done in the way I like it to be done or like why like like the, does this and it's not only in like my relationship with you know my partner who I live with like I can see it all throughout my life like um and to yeah to I think like I kind of I don't want to change I would say like 70% of it but I feel like there's a 30% that I could just really relax so yeah sorry I don't feel like I've been like no I'm thinking that's so interesting because I was listening to this podcast again like New Year's and whatever um, I will say I saw this really great Instagram by a person I don't know what ethnicity they were but they criticised Westerners so we're going to roll with that but he was like Westerners are ridiculous like you 
talk about New Year's resolutions and you say, oh, I'm going to pick up all these new habits and be the best possible version of myself. In the middle of winter, when it's dark and depressing and people aren't out and there's no sunshine, like you need, this is the time for hibernate and shedding. He was like, think of yourself as nature. Shed the habits you want to get rid of now. And in spring, that's when you should start new things, which I think is really good advice because mm-hmm. I think we often take on too much on New Year's. But as you're talking, I was listening to a podcast about habits because I was thinking about like what habits I want to cultivate this year. And one thing they said was a habit is often a solution to a problem we're trying to cope with. And it's the way habits build in these ways that we're trying to cope with problems. And often they're not the best response to the problem, but they are how we're trying to cope. And so I think even when you're talking about like being rigid, it's like, what are you trying to control with the routine or the ritual? Or what is the anxiety you're trying to stave off by doing things the same thing, same way all of the time? And so I think that's often getting to the root of like, what do you think would fall apart if you weren't at the desk? at the same time every morning or what do you think would fall apart if you didn't get to do your routine every day yeah I think that's a, such a great way of looking at it and yeah like like so much of it is just yeah what makes you feel safe and like Completely. you know yeah, yeah, yeah. so it, no I think it's so good to yeah to sort of interrogate th- these things but yeah flexibility came to mind like what I do at the New Year's is I write well I write a list and I break it into four generally and I have like career stuff Nice. I have creative stuff, mm. I have health and I have life. Kind of like, you know, okay, relationship yeah. stuff or whatever. Um, and I, I had 30 this year, like, intentions. And then I sort of went back and looked at what I had on, on my list last year. Because it's a list and I print it out and I put it on my wall. And it's there. I don't really look at it, but it's there all the mm. time. I was like, fuck, like, it was great. I would say, like, 26 of them, like, I did. Like, awesome. literally did word for word. And about four of them... Not quite, but kind of maybe I would say they really coloured my year in a positive way or I did a kind of better version of the thing that was on the list. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think flexibility and like looseness for me is is good. Do you have a word that you're taking into the air? I do. I'm going to... I'm stealing self-validating because I thought that was a lovely one, but that's like my, my B-side. I think the one I'm focusing on, again, it's two-word hyphenate because I'm cheating, <laughs> um, but it's future-focused because mm. I think... The past year has been lovely and I've been doing a lot of work and I do a lot of teaching and a lot of writing, but I really felt like I was kind of trying to get through every week instead of thinking like bigger picture career stuff or I wasn't making time for like creative stuff that I really want to build on. And even stupid habits like spending money on clothes I don't really need or like I'm a great one for buying bits and going, actually, this is spending a stupid amount of my money, which could be, you know, focused on holidays or building a home or, you know, investing in in the experiences that I want to have and so I think future focus trying to help me balance my career stuff and go where do you want to be in five years and what's going to help you get there instead of going I need to take this tiny job that's going to take up a huge amount of my time and energy and not really progress me in the way that I want to and also just have it like spending and even like my relationship with my body like I hate exercise I just hate it I know it makes you feel better when you do it yada yada but going what is the relationship I want to have with my body and for me that's like I want to be able to like dance well or I want to have like fun and I want to feel like good and healthy but not in a really depressing rigid way so like for me that's like do some more dance classes or do more yoga or do like more 
or stretching or go sea swimming and so that's the experience I want to have in my body and just feel a bit better about it so what are the habits I can cultivate now to get there mm. so I think for me it's about like long term vision and I think for me that's that's come from me deciding to stay in Ireland as well and because again I was bopping around and it was all very short term I'll stay here for a year I'll stay here and I'm going no I'm here now what do I want my life in Ireland to look like and what do I want my career to look like and that's big creative projects like finishing a book and that's like what do I want my teaching career to be and I'm thinking about going back and doing a PhD and so going what are the steps to get towards the future I want instead of just kind of trying to survive and struggle through small bits that'll keep me scrambling but won't get me anywhere so future focused is my thing I love it we didn't answer the question but I kind of don't want it because we sort of hit it is that not answering the question no it was exactly <laughs> yeah what's one thing you want to sorry you totally answered it I'm just jealous <laughs> because you rephrased it better um, number 19 no I don't have 19 oh I was so confident you know you've done really well so far oh this is good this is right on brand what is your relationship to writing Oh, well, yeah, I think <laughs> <laughs> the shoulders sag. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting because I, as you know, I, I got a book deal uh, last year and I was due to have a book come out and it's about my experiences with PTSD and it's an essay collection. And, you know, getting the book deal has been the dream mm-hmm. forever. And um, I'm not going to say it's every little girl's dream to have a book about PTSD coming out (laughs) that's not really the dream you think it's going to be something much more hopeful or whatever um but yeah I had a book deal I had a deadline I had a release date and I spent a lot of time working on that book and towards the end was just emotionally wrecked and just found it really draining and I wasn't really showing it to people and was kind of snow blind by it and started kind of panicking and reacting to the book instead of writing it so I started I did like a terrible edit where I just took out chunks of the personal stuff and it kind of has three threads in it like there's the personal thread of my story there's research about PTSD and how we misunderstand PTSD particularly when it comes to women and then there's kind of cultural threads of how we present trauma in pop culture and Uh, I just started taking all the personal stuff out because I didn't want to think about it anymore and I was just overwhelmed by it and it was a terrible edit and my editors were very gentle and going so this might need a bit of work this is meant to be a personal essay collection and there's no personal in it anymore Um, and I think I kind of had to say the book deal is the dream and that's glorious but I need to take care of myself right now and so I need to step away from it and so the the deadline has been taken up and I'm not sure when I'm going to finish it but this year has been so much better in terms of me feeling good about myself and building up like a safe community around me and safe atmosphere around me so that I feel more comfortable delving into the emotionally rough stuff um so I think I'm thinking about writing as a relationship really like that idea of what what do I need to do to write in a sustainable way that it's going to be this long-term love affair rather than burning myself out with this kind of toxic relationship where I'm putting like the deadline and the book deal and these ideas of success over what's good for me and what's good for the writing um and I also think it's interesting like I think we have this mythology about oh you need to be like a tortured artist to write well or to create anything meaningful And I don't think that's true and I think that's dangerous. But I do think when you're going through something really difficult, there's an urgency to express yourself because you're trying to be understood and you're trying to understand your own experiences. And I think that urgency can propel a lot of art. And what I'm trying to do is harness that energy and that motivation and that momentum. But when I'm feeling emotionally healthy and safe, um, 
and yeah I think my I think I'm teaching a lot of writing at the moment like I teach in UCD and I teach in the Irish Writers Centre and I do kind of adult courses um and that's been really lovely I think there's something particularly gorgeous about seeing adults go back to writing or start writing and seeing them create their relationship with writing where it's it's not something that's been instilled in them school or there isn't a deadline approaching them and they're appreciating the joy and the creativity and kind of, you know, experiencing different writers and seeing the playfulness of it and seeing that relationship. And I think that's been really encouraging for me to go, actually, you need to cultivate that as well. You need a sense of wonder. So you need to like read books by authors you haven't read or different genres that you're not used to reading to see the possibility. So I think I'm trying to like fall back in love with writing after having like a rough patch in our relationship. What an answer. I, I, I would like, so the sound of the book, and I have a feeling anyone listening will agree, like the book sounds so good. Mm. But do you know what I think is really interesting? And sorry, like I've, I don't know, I'm giving advice in your book, by the way. Please do. Um, I, but I, I would just so love to, I think that beat of your story of writing the book, mm. like, is fascinating that like part of being in it and in all the lava and the muckiness and the messiness of like what happened and like the pain that is Mm. there and like that obviously no in lots of ways you've got a handle on but like when big stuff like that happens like some of it's there forever and that's like what we know but I, I think that that thing of like listening to your yeah to your body and your heart and your head and whatever it is that says like well I need a I need a break I can't go there right now like that feels like such an important in your story because like I think I, I don't know like, again like I don't really know a lot about this stuff but like all that like tendency to dissociate and that tendency to feel like oh I have to deliver something to have value and all that it sounds like in that beat of that story like you really challenged all those things you know what I mean and you listened and like I don't know if it's useful as feedback I'm like that feels like such a uh, a satisfying thing to dig into as a like <laughs> not to call it a, a happy ending but like that feels like a really like pertinent part of your journey I think it's yeah I think it's interesting because something that is in the book is I couldn't write for about 18 months um, PTSD affects this area in your brain called Broca's area which uh, impacts language and it's why when we go through traumatic experiences often people can't speak or they're oh. rendered silent or they freeze but often it stops them from putting into words what happened to them and if you get like a PTSD flashback this part of your brain is reactivated so it over time it can impact how you can express yourself and I really couldn't write for 18 months like I and I couldn't read like I because my attention span and my cognitive function basically shut down so if I started a paragraph I'd read the first sentence by the end of paragraph I couldn't remember how it started and it really like as a writer professional writer terrifying like I thought I was going to lose all my jobs I thought I was never going to write again and so when it slowly started coming back and when I was offered a book deal there was such a sense of oh my god I lost it once I can't lose this but also the way just the way I was and getting back into it and dealing with the subject matter it was too much all at once and so even allowing myself the space to go like this will happen and it's going to happen and you don't have to panic and it was almost like going through an abusive relationship and then having someone be nice to you and latching on to them with all your might going you're offering me a scrap and I'm going to take it and going actually this isn't the relationship you need you need to have something that's with your healed self and that's really generative not just offering you a scrap and I think that's where I am now um so that will be in the book and I think something that's important for the book is it's told in fragments and in threads because I think something I focus a lot on and I teach courses on this is 
the traditional storytelling arc of like here's you know first it's like the hero's journey you set out you encounter obstacles you overcome them you come home happy ever after that isn't most people's story you know a lot of people have experiences that are more troubled or unresolved or traumatic and those experiences are fragmented and need to be told in like a fragmented structure so that's what I'm working with in the book but I think this idea of like stopping and starting writing I also have to show that through the work because I think structure is a way of like really heightening and being true to your story which is why I play with like experimental structures so yeah that idea of the gap and losing language has to be in there somewhere Um, and I am playing with kind of ideas of like white out poetry where the language breaks on the page and stuff to show how it broke in my brain and then hopefully getting back to a place of like it's back now we can feel a little bit more prose like so yeah it's gonna be a weird book man <laughs> if I finish it it's gonna be a weird book sounds great I love it I can't wait to read okay let's keep going number 45 oh I had 46 oh okay 45 um Oh, I oh, this is this is might be my it's a new question. I fucking love it. <laughs> uh, if you could only choose one, what would you prefer to be seen as funny or to be seen as good looking? Okay, okay. My <laughs> interesting. See, the answer I feel is like the morally right answer is to say funny, uh. right? Because it's a better quality. However. There is research that shows if you are good looking, people think you are funnier than you are. Mm. Like if someone who is not conventionally attractive and a person who is conventionally attractive tell the same joke, people will laugh so much more at the good looking person because they are more attracted to them. They perceive them as nicer. They perceive them as having more charisma and more confidence. And I just want to point that out how messed up our society is. Like we say we value funniness. But inherently, there's just, we have so much hang-ups about people's physical attractiveness that we assume that they're nice or we assume they're smart or we assume they're more capable. Like, they've shown this in politicians, that if you have two male politicians particularly, uh, the one who is taller and more conventionally attractive is more likely to win just because people feel more drawn to them. Like, it's so messed up. We're such primal, ridiculous creatures. So if... I value funny more over like conventionally attractiveness in people I hang around with. Uh, if I wanted to like make more money, I would go for good looking. So I think it's but in line with my values. Yeah, funny. I'm also writing a book about trauma, so maybe good looking is better. <laughs> maybe I don't want people to think I'm funny. Um, I think that's tricky. I think I know too much about the privilege that comes with being deemed good looking. I'm going to give, I think it's not the answer I want to give, but I think I would go good looking. Yeah. I think it opens more doors, which is really systemically problematic. And I've just done a lot of research on this. And even like, you know, this is why we, we give out to women a lot for spending time on beauty routines or like, you know, I, I really hate this new thing of like, giving out about women who get like fillers or plastic surgery and like everything about patriarchy is telling them that they're wrong all of the time like the game is messed up and then you're punishing people for trying to play it and I do think I think it's really problematic when people get stuff and lie about it particularly like young women and stuff um but there's so I'm a woman and there's so much research about how and men there's also so much research about how straight men uh, they say they want funny women and what they actually want is women who laugh at their own jokes uh, that men want to feel funny so I value funny more but I think I know too much about how being deemed attractive uh, 
impacts the quality of people's lives. And I think that's a problem, but I want my life to be good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you know what the the better question, I think where that question comes from, because even when, you, when reading that question, you're like, hmm, it kind of sounds funky, but like... I think if my friends were talking about me, I'd much rather they go like, oh, she's funny, yeah. rather than like, her hair is nice. Do you know what I mean? Like as But if your partner... My partner is better looking than me and he thinks he's funnier than me. Uh, <laughs> we will argue about that later. No, yeah, I'd want him to say I'm funny. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Also, beauty like beauty fades and people's appearance of bodies change. And I think that's... If you're going into a long-term relationship with someone, you have to acknowledge that. And at the end of the day, you just want someone who makes you laugh. I totally agree. I, I think I was talking about this with a friend recently and I was saying... But it wasn't about funny or good looking. It was about... It was about... I don't even remember what it was about, but basically what I'm trying to say is I think like what you want to be or what you're afraid of not being, you like everything becomes in opposition to that. Mm. So what I mean is I know in my life the thing that I am afraid of the most, which is kind of bananas, but it's true, is like is someone not liking me. Yeah, That is like the idea of that is painful. Mm. It's scary. It really threatens me, yeah. you know. So... I would have a real sense of like for the first chunk of my life arguably I'll do it forever design myself to be the most likable mm-hmm. thing that I could be um, which is great there's loads of like that's a useful thing to do to a certain yeah. point and then you know you're also like hmm that probably gets in the way of some other things so like uh, but like so say if someone if someone doesn't think I'm funny or if someone doesn't think this was what we were talking about if someone doesn't think I'm smart I couldn't give a fuck because I I'm pretty comfortable in my intellect. I'm yeah, like yeah. I know I am I'm like not the smartest person in the world. Uh, I have an intellect that will get me uh, by more than ably. You know what I mean? Says I, the award-winning writer Tom Moore. <laughs> Why did the sexy voice come back over that? Um, but awards are sexy. <laughs> but like I I'm, I'm comfortable in that. I'm comfortable with how smart I am. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I'm I'm I'm. So if someone said like, oh, he's really stupid, I'd be like, mm, I don't care. You know what I mean? But if someone said, he's a prick, he's a fucking cunt, I, I couldn't, <laughs> I could, I would send me into a tailspin for weeks, Yeah, yeah. for months, maybe forever, you know, when I'd see that person and I'd freak and I'd be Googling there. I'd be, mm. th- this was one, time, I feel like we're talking about social media a lot, but it's a big thing, like, and I like, when I look at Twitter, because I am still on Twitter, and I always am like, I shouldn't be on Twitter, but when I look at the things I search, they're normally terrible like I'm normally looking for the controversial oh, thing yeah. or I'm looking for like I'll see oh so and so's trending why and I'll be just curious and mm. I never pile on I never like it I never retweet it like I'm really anti it but I, I want to know yeah. you know and it, like it's like I can see it it's like my baser instincts it's where to go to satisfy them it's ugly. And I, I think that that's where that question comes from. It's like Yeah, I know I think in my life like in my life I would like the people in my life to think that I was funny and that's more important to me. And I think again, it's being a millennial woman and I'm so intellectually aware of all the bullshit that surrounds women and the ideas of attractiveness and conventional and they're, you know, often racist and very western and you know, there's all like European and I intellectually know all this. And also, I think as women it's very hard not to experience that on a very real level. 
like what happens if you're not deemed to be attractive and how that affects you and I think I'm caring much less about that in my 30s which I'm so grateful for um like I used to be very very insecure about how I'd look and spent a lot of time thinking about it and now I'm kind of like you know <laughs> I said you want to turn up I'm like I live in sweatpants now I have a lot going on and I don't care anymore um but yeah so I think there's a lot of that programming which is why I'm like oh god I feel like that's you know that scene in Fleabag where the two sisters are at like a feminist talk and the the lecturer is like just reassure me how many people here would give off five years of their life for the perfect body and Fleabag and her sister the only ones who put up their hands are like oh we're not meant to and I think that's the thing like I'm so aware of what happens when women are not deemed to be attractive and the way we're policed and punished for it in really insidious ways that that's I will, I work on it and then continue to work on it. It's all, I think that's going to be there. It's been programmed deep. But yeah, the people in my life, I hope they think I'm funny. Yeah, and that, that, that is the thing that like when, because everything that you've said, you're, and you're, you're also, I feel like you're so well researched across this. Oh, it's so depressing. You know so much. <laughs> I, I was thinking that, I was like, hmm, I wonder would Roe be happier if she just knew less, you know? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but like, but also, right, like say taking into, for instance, that stuff in the home and that disproportionate mm-hmm. balance of like, yeah, the, the the woman does more of the work, she does more of the work in the house, all of this sort of stuff. Um, and then that stuff around beauty and beauty standards and all the awareness that is now growing and building and becoming more mainstream but like will it change or is it too deep in there no and I think it is changing I think like body positivity and even body neutrality movements which I think can be a lot easier for people uh, I think they are I think even this generation like looking so this is so stupid but low-rise jeans god help us are coming back into fashion and low-rise jeans were responsible genuinely I say this seriously were responsible for so many eating disorders for women of my generation because we grew up with like Brittany and Christina and like all the low-rise jeans and these tiny women with like really petite like really rock hard abs and like I still remember there's one picture of Jessica Simpson at a concert and she's wearing a pair of high rise jeans and she was a petite woman and got so fat shamed for being like a smaller than average woman like we grew up with so many damaging body image messages and I see the new generation of low rise jeans are coming back and they're not terrified by them because they've had body positivity and they've had body neutrality and they've had kind of like more positive messages around beauty standards and stuff and then the flip side is like all these filters and all this pressure and all these celebrities who lie to the like really young female followers about what the work they've had done and stuff so I think there's a flip side I do think there is a responsibility for society to like take those standards away and there is and I hate putting this on women because it's not our fault but there is a responsibility for women to be like honest about what we've had done and be honest about like what we look like and to fight back against that and we shouldn't have to but I think if we're thinking about like what's the next generation going to grow up what do we want their messages to be like women need to be a part of that conversation but men need to not opt out of that conversation as well I was literally just going to ask as a man listening to you now I'm like yeah I agree with all of that and like it's funny I was thinking about like what well, what came to mind there was we my me and Rosie we were having a partner and we were talking about people in the room to their wedding and getting a little bit of like work done is it like baby Botox or something yeah, like yeah. that and all this sort of stuff and uh, Botox on babies right okay. <laughs> and, I, and I was like I was like I was like I would be uh, and like yeah and I would always just so like I like eh, but it's that weird thing because I kind of am like would always like urge 
we'd, we'd be talking about, oh, like, would you get that? Would you? And, I, and uh, I'd always be like, oh, like, I really wouldn't want you to get anything. And in my head, I mean, that's A, that's honest. That is true. Because mm-hmm. like I, the the way she is is perfect. I, mean, I wouldn't mm. want a thing. But at the same time, like, I'm like, well, I, I, like, I, I guess in a weird way, that's me sort of like pressuring her to like, you know, do what I want to. You know, I mean, I mean, in the most kind of subtle and uh, well-intentioned way. Just generally speaking, though, like what what is like, uh, I fucking hate all the words surrounding this stuff because like they're so bastardized and so many fucking pricks mm-hmm. use them. But like how, as a man, do you be like an ally to that movement? I think a huge thing is like becoming aware of and I say this with love like your ignorance around this stuff because they've shown like when when Botox and fillers and plastic surgery are done in a like deliberately natural way you're not meant to notice them mm-hmm. is the whole point which means that so many of the celebrities that we witness they've had loads of stuff done but it's not obvious they just look amazing like that quote like amazing for their age or whatever or they look stunning and they look like they don't have any wrinkles and so going that's what like this stuff looks like. So you're not meant to notice. So you're not meant to look at celebrities and go, oh, I love the way she had that Botox there. You're just meant to go, oh my God, what a babe, <laughs> right. right? And that's what women are competing with all the time. And even like the just general idea that men, <laughs> like if you see those pictures of what men think natural makeup is or what men think no makeup is, and it's a woman with a full face, but it's like designed to be natural looking makeup and going look at the amount of work that women have to put in for men to think like, oh, you're naturally gorgeous because you're so unused to seeing women, women like in their natural state because that's like we are policed. And again, there's so much research, like if women go to work with no makeup on, they're seen to be less competent. They're asked if they're ill. They seem to be less organized and less together, less confident, all of these things, because we associate women being groomed in a very particular gendered way and presenting themselves in a certain way with competence rather than women going I'm not st- I'm just not spending my time on this stuff and men don't have to get up in the morning and spend half an hour doing their face or doing their makeup to have all of these personality qualities and work qualities assumed of them like men can walk in having thrown on a suit not done anything to them and there's no assumption made about their competence level or their organisation level and people don't treat them differently whereas that happens women all the time so I think really noticing that and it can be really basic stuff there was a really great example of an Australian newsreader and he um, there was her his co-presenter was a woman and she got a couple of complaints because she re-wore the same dress on air like a couple of times within the space of a couple of months he wore the same suit for a year and nobody noticed <laughs> right that's the level of pressure and stupidity that is put on women that we have to present ourselves differently all the time so I think it's becoming aware of that stuff mm. and then thinking about like the misogyny that also fuels criticisms of women who do get work done or who you know do post pictures of themselves or are proud of their bodies like we hate women who are confident in themselves but we also hate women who get work done to answer the demands of patriarchy like the ways women can't win and being really really aware of that so noticing and also noticing your media consumption like what are the images of women that I'm constantly being fed or that I'm you know getting into my own algorithm because I'm responding to and what is that making me how is that making me think of other types of bodies or other types of women um is it making me think less of them and I think something that's really insidious now is 
we had this really dangerous diet culture and now it's been rebranded as like, no, I just want to be strong. And it's like, well, you're still like a tiny white woman like with a very particular body type that not a lot of people can get. So the wording around it is different. But there's also this idea of, and again, like research has shown, if someone is attractive and particularly if they are like physically slim and fit, they're often assumed to be like morally superior like there's and you can see that in like particularly Instagram culture like people being like I got up at six in the morning and I did my work and then I tended to my kids and it's it's almost a thing of like because I'm conventionally attractive and I'm showing you the work that goes into that I am morally superior to you in some way and that can be a really dangerous hole to fall down and I do think the flip side of that is like I think women should be if it takes women like a huge amount of training and stuff to get their body the way that they want, like they should show the work because that's being transparent about it going like, no, I didn't naturally wake up with the most pert ass that anyone has ever seen. Like work went into this and that demystifies it for other women who might go, oh my God, other women just naturally look like this. We don't. But I think it's being really aware of the messages you're fed about women and our appearance. Yeah. It, <clears throat> it, it's funny as well. As a also give us time in the morning if we need if you complain when I need to take longer than you to get ready I'm gonna murder you I, won't do I mean that. you personally but just men generally I promise to not do that <laughs> like it's funny I was in uh, lifestyle sports the other day and I was gonna get runners and uh, I was walking by uh, one of the mannequins and it was for Under Armour you know like yeah, the, yeah. the the sporting brand and I. I and I just, like, as a man, and I'm sorry, and all these questions kind of point at my own baggage, but like I've had my own issues with my body. I mean, mm. in the recent show that you saw, I kind of touch on it, but it's something I'd like to touch on more because it is one of them things, like I'm kind of reticent to go like, because I think human beings full stop are going to have issues with their bodies yeah. like, and there's different versions of it for men. And I, I, I like there's, there, there's no benefit to comparing them in the slightest. It was very interesting to me because uh, um, that's the other thing on like Instagram. You see the, a lot of the the big like bodybuilder guys or like, yeah, you know, or like movie stars, guys. you know, you'd like see fucking Hugh Jackman and then like people are like, well, he's clearly on steroids. Oh, oh and all the body transformation stuff. Yeah, there. like there's yeah, this, yeah. you know, there's this, if you'd like, you can like track kind of like what a, a movie star like 30 years ago looked like versus now. And I mean, it's... Oh, Hugh Jackman in the first X-Men film, like he just had like a normal good dad bod like he was in shape and now it's like every peck is outlined and I interviewed Hugh Jackman once and he was talking about like the diets he went on where he had to like just eat basically plain chicken and then wouldn't drink water for two days before filming because then your skin sticks to your muscles and it's more defined I'm like how is this all yeah. out it's yeah, really yeah. unhealthy 100% so like and like yeah even being in the shop and going by the Under Armour stuff and I looked at the mannequin I was like that is insane. Yeah. Like the mannequin, like I'm a broad, mm. well-built man. The mannequin was like twice my size, went in like a... Had the, oh, the Dorito waist. Had the V yeah, thing yeah. with the Dorito waist, like these rippled abs. I was like, mm -hmm. that's mad. Like oh, that, insane. Like that is mad. Like it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, a small, like slim, medium-sized. It was like, <laughs> it was like a Greek god. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was kind of amazing. Anyway, right. Um, well, I think that's big. Men and body image is becoming really big as well because I think stuff like Instagram and stuff like this horrendous trend of men in movies is perpetuating these really, really damaging uh, 
body image stuff for men and I think more people need to talk about that and again I think men who have body image stuff that like go to the gym to an excessive amount or restrict their calories to an excessive amount again because we deem that to be quote-unquote healthy and when it can be really unhealthy physically and emotionally and mentally it's kind of hidden and insidious and doesn't get addressed as much which I think is a huge problem yeah it's funny actually what about uh, the phrase and like you used it there so I'm not I don't sorry I don't mean this to like I'm not trying to turn something back on you but I have an instinctive repulsion from the phrase dad bod and I don't know why yeah yeah no that's completely fair and I think it's it's no, yeah, that is completely fair. And I think I um, was trying to tap into, like, a, create an image in your head of what Hugh Jackman looked like using, using <laughs> yeah. common ver- vernacular. No, it is. But it is. It's almost this idea. And it's usually incredibly in-shape guys. Yes, anyway, that's what it is And me. it's kind of like, saying, I don't know, like... Any da- you're like, that's like the sexiest dad. I remember someone said it about Jason Momoa because he wasn't filming for Aquaman and there was a picture of oh, him chilling. Yeah, and I was like, you are still so muscular <laughs> yeah. and ridiculous. And whose dad is this? It's not really yeah. the Irish dad I've ever seen. So, yeah, you're completely right no sorry yeah but I'm always like sometimes you, you know when you get that and it's like this instinctive kind of like why don't I, I need to pet these for women it's uh, I hate when a tabloids do this all the time they're like she's flaunting her curves I'm like do you mean she's existing in a body what is yeah. she flaunting here it's yeah. ridiculous yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, we've one hundred percent gone over error, but we do two more to finish. Okay, because I don't we'll do like a quick round. Quick yeah, round. Yeah, okay, okay. okay. I mean, I don't trust either of us to be quick. <laughs> it's thirty-three. No. Okay, thirty-three. The question is: Oh, what do you think people's first impressions of you are? Uh, eyeliner creator hag. Which red hair? <laughs> um, You'd love if that's what people's first impression. Do you know what's terrible? I have quite bad face blindness. I, if I meet someone, if I, if I meet them in any way out of context, I will not recognize them, and it mm. makes me seem so rude to people. And the thing is, I have quite long dyed red hair, and I have glasses, and um, so people tend to remember me. <laughs> and so I get a lot of people going, "Ro," and I'm just looking at them, going, "Hey, hun." I have no idea who they are. Um, what do I think people's first impression of me is? Um, yeah, I have no idea. I actually don't know. Um, I think it probably depends when they meet me. I think it depends. I Because of my work, I'm doing less of this, thank God. But there was a period in my life where anything I did to work was like me debating some men's rights activist and that was like the only time I was interacting with people professionally it was really <laughs> depressing I really and I don't do those debates anymore because I'm so sick of that entire structure with media stuff that I think is so damaging that we're going to debate people's human rights mm. or debate these things I'm, these are not intellectual exercises um, but I think when that was happening I know people just thought I was like angry all the time and I was like well yeah because I have to debate this men's rights activist over like whether women are being sexually assaulted or lying about it, according to him. Of course, I'm pissed off. Um, now I hope it's more chilled. Right now, it's probably to me. think I'm a bit frazzled and stressed because that's how I'm feeling. Um, I hope it's that I'm polite and friendly because uh, I really dislike people who aren't. Um, uh, I don't know. What was your first impression of me? Yeah, it was just, I, I always feel like that's what this uh, question ends yeah. up. It's like, yeah, you tell me yours. And uh, I remember thinking you were lovely and immediately very warm because we met in Tyrone Guthrie and it's none of us knew each other. Mm-hmm. And you were immediately very warm and very smiley and very <laughs> confident speaking to a group of us who you'd never met before. And you were, and I think... 
immediately came across as like really warm and curious about other people, which makes complete sense because you do this podcast. But I find that's a real bugbear of mine if I meet people and we've been speaking for a long time and they don't ask me any questions about myself and I'm like oh you're not you're not particularly curious about other people oh that's such a good distillation uh, curiosity is like I, and, yeah. and I, I'm, I'm biased towards this because I am very curious <laughs> I really yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah 100% I really am but I like me and Rosie were talking about this because you know we're together a while now but like you know still over the first because we met in the pandemic so you're still meeting people's families yeah, for a yeah. long time mm-hmm. and uh, and she's like you're really good at asking people like very personal questions but then they just answer and I was yeah. like yeah I'm, and I, I'd have an awareness of that in me because I'm I am really after the career I, well, yeah, I, but I really want to know like I want I, I, oh I'm, I've gotten people to write into me with their personal details yeah. of their lives and I just get to read them yeah it's great yeah, yeah. but you're, you're my first impressions of you because yeah we met at Tyrone Guthrie which is a writer's retreat mm-hmm. and our particular week or whatever that, that we were COVID. there was COVID yeah. and it was what, am I right in saying it was all women except me except you yeah Yeah. I have to say this and it's going to mortify you and I don't care Um, it was myself and then a lot of like older women and every single one of them was like at, by the end of it showing you pictures of their daughters and going she's single like they all it was literally like you met a group of mothers and they fell in love with you and were trying to shove their daughters at you by the end of the week it was adorable and hilarious there must be a, a game show version of that premise that's really let's do right? that that's pretty good don't put that in the pocket someone will steal it let's pitch it or to yeah you have to go on it like basically an audition with people's mothers yeah love it that's good um but I yeah. will also say you met my dad at a different time which I wrote and go through and he also thinks you're adorable and I think because we hadn't met and I remember him saying do you know this man Tom Moore and he does a podcast he's lovely and I think you low-key got my dad to do that of like I have a daughter but he was saying it to me so yeah <laughs> so funny yeah I, yeah. So, but, but sorry I'm going to come back to okay. first impressions no funnily similarly very open um, really smart but very very nice very engaging and I feel like you were because I think like you when at the this writer's retreat in particular like you're kind of free to do your own thing and then you come together at meals mm. so like you're kind of getting to know people by like how they interact with like the staff in the place mm-hmm. weirdly so like yeah and like and really and, and kind of the way you like people manage like the table and all the different like kind of <laughs> conversations across the room and all that and just yeah really 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 lovely I, I, I gravitated towards you very quickly but I also remember we were I think we were like doing the thing of like oh what are you working on what are mm-hmm. you working on and then you started talking I think you said oh yeah so it's like you know a collection of personal essays and I was up there working on essays too yeah. and then um, you were kind of telling me about yours and then I very this is kind of my default when someone talks about things that I don't understand like it, it happened like once or twice definitely in season one of this podcast but when there's really smart people and I kind of don't feel able to intellectually keep up I just like go for like 100% vulnerability because like I know I know how to like keep up there so like they'll be kind of talking about like research or studies not that you you weren't doing that but it was kind of like I don't know loads about PTSD Mm. so then like I would just default to like yeah well I don't even know if my dad loves me do you know and <laughs> like that's my that's like my porcupine putting the spikes out you know no, what I mean no but you know what I think is so lovely about that is that I 
intellectualize things so I don't feel as vulnerable around very vulnerable topics like I mm. do it with my work like it's why I always put like research in my work and I've had to kind of scale back and go are you putting research in because it's it's necessary for the book and interesting to the reader or is it because you're kind of going see I have research to back this up it's not just me and see like I'm going to distract you with this very controlled thread of writing or whatever and so I think even when I talk about my work and because like you know Telling people that you're writing an essay collection about PTSD, like you're immediately revealing something about yourself, something that is quite vulnerable and something that is quite stigmatized and that a lot of people would be like, oh, Jesus, like I'm not going to ask any follow up questions. Mm -hmm. So intellectualizing it is my way of kind of controlling it. And I think your approach is lovely because it's going okay cool but like can we connect on something now like you're giving right. me your spiel yeah well done uh, but like let's have a human conversation which I think is gorgeous I mean yeah thank you for seeing the best in my defence <laughs> mechanism <laughs> right let's go one last one I'm not gonna win oh look the bingo machine's tired it, it needs to give us a ball we exhausted it oh, fuck it's broken <laughs> we exhausted it with oh, all our feelings there we go okay it's number four I don't have number you four you don't have number no. four that is absolutely no worries. Oh, kind of interesting way to end. So, number four. Do you have a memory from your childhood, big or small, good or bad, that plays on a loop in your head? Oh, I have a cute <laughs> one. I mean, I'm sure there is, like... Do people go really traumatic with this or something? No, uh, when I was about four, my parents... I think it was County Clare... And I, I'm going to get the details of this wrong, but I kind of vividly remember we were in like, that we were having like a, a nice wood walk and it was my entire family and it was like very mossy and sunshiny and really tall trees and very idyllic. And we came across this thing and I can't remember what they're called, which is going to drive me crazy. But um, it's basically... Uh, there's kind of like almost a little natural ramp to a mound and they used to be known as like the portals to the fairy world and these were where the fairies would come in and do their mischief and steal babies and swap them or whatever they and my dad is a you've met he's a writer and he's a storyteller and he used to tell us loads of stories about the fairies when we were growing up and I you know was a little imaginative weirdo child and also I think had the impulse that I am trying to like get through of like I always kind of want to be somewhere else and I always think something more exciting is happening somewhere else and um, so at four I very confidently walked down to this like natural portal and just uh, yeah okay you can go now I'm gonna let them take me bye and got really pushy with my parents and was like no you need to they're not gonna take me if you're here can you leave so the fairies can take me and kind of went from this is a whimsical idea to my parents going we really can't leave you in the woods and me getting quite stroppy about it. <laughs> and I just always think of that, of me always wanting to do something vaguely ridiculous and run away. And the people in my life having to be like, we need to we need to take care of you now, actually, and me getting stroppy about it. There's a book I'm obsessed with by Sarah Polly, who's a writer and an actress and a director. And she directed this uh, film that's coming out this year called Women Talking, which is absolutely phenomenal and everyone has to go see it. But she had an essay collection and it kind of touches on her experiences as a child actress and body image stuff and trauma. And But she talks about this therapy she did to get over some trauma. And her therapist basically told her, like, when you're in a panic attack or you're having a slip, like, you keep running away from that reaction. And what you need to do is kind of embrace that reaction as much 
much as possible so that your body realizes like you can withstand this and if you're in a panic attack you're not going to die this is a panic attack it's going to hit a peak and then it's going to go down so they were like almost like exposure therapy you need to like run towards your fear and the, the phrase they latched onto was like run toward the danger and I feel like I have that a little bit in my life where I'm like, as my mother likes to call it, I'm a little bit of an adrenaline cookie because <laughs> she doesn't like the other word. Um, and also in my work, I kind of like throwing myself towards like, you know, kind of interesting or difficult themes and kind of exploring them. Uh, and also I like going off on weird and random adventures and my friends have to like rein me in sometimes. I remember I went, I got invited to Croatia by a guy who I'd met once and I said it to my friend and he was like, yeah. And I have like a series of text messages that I've screenshot. He was like, yeah, okay, it could be fun. But also maybe one of the more murdery ideas you've ever had. Maybe no. Yeah, Ro, please no. And uh, so I think me just going to the fairy the fairy portal and being like you can all go now it's just me running toward the danger that's fantastic and in your second collection of essays after the one for next year <laughs> I think that is a really nice prelude chapter prologue yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. let's open it up you can all like go it. now <laughs> yeah <laughs> um Ron McDermott, thanks so much for playing Personality Bingo. Thank you. Um, some depressing research, some emotional vulnerability and a lot of mentions of eyeliner. Is that the summary? <laughs> Excellent. Well tidied up. Well tidied up. Um, yeah, pal, that was great. Thanks so much. So guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Personality Bingo. A massive shout out to the wonderful Roe McDermott. Roe, thank you so much for coming in and making the time. That, uh, for me, is an all-time winner as a Personality Bingo episode. It had everything I could want and more, so I hope you enjoyed just as much as I did. Before we go any further, I want to give a massive shout out to our brilliant network here, the Headstuff Podcast Network. Check out all the other podcasts right across the roster. They have so much brilliant stuff coming out all the time. Uh, a huge shout out to the wonderful Connor Nolan for our fantastic artwork to the fantastic Leah Moore I've said fantastic too many times there but I'm just very excited Leah Moore for our wonderful theme music as always and to you for listening uh, guys thank you so much if you did enjoy the episode please feel free to give it a share on your Instagram your Twitter whatever you want to do make sure you're subscribed to us wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you back very soon for another episode of Personality Bingo with Tom Moore is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.